Ah, the word of the Lord, awesome. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Lord, Lord, here we go. So when we were um, at Milwaukee Covenant, we talked about this text in relationship to our bodies, right? And to our body image. And thinking in light of God's mercy, which is how this text starts, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. How is it in view of God's mercy that we are created in his image? And that we are and once were holy and pleasing in our material qualities as humans. And in one sense, we just have to get back to our belovedness. We have to accept our acceptedness and offer ourselves in worship. All that we are, no more, no less. And that's key. No more than we are, but also no less than we are. We offer our bodies fully as a living, complete sacrifice, set apart and pleasing to God. God is not asking us to be any more than he created us to be. We have certain personalities just as we have certain noses and ears. Some of that personality is baked in. This is the, the old nature versus nurture argument. Some of your personality is formed by your upbringing, by good or bad parenting, by hard or great circumstances, by poverty or riches. That's the nurture side. But some of your personality, anyone who has siblings can attest, other people grew up in that same environment and they turn out totally differently. They have totally different personalities. So we have a certain part of our emotional being our personal, our personality that's outside of our physical but is knit into our physical, that is just part of who we are. There is a certain quality to us that is unchanged, and that's why we have things like the Myers-Briggs test or the Strength Finders test, or some of you might know the Enneagram. You have all these ways that people say, oh yeah, what person, I need to understand, like what's your baked in personality type? And much of our life is formed by living out that baked in personality type. The other is formed by things that are moldable, changeable, that we can navigate, habits that we build, things that we can live out and change and morph. Dostoevsky said that, and he's a famous Russian writer, he said that the second half of life for so many people is just spent living out the habits they developed in the first half of their life. And I think that's actually like a tremendous warning to us, right? <laughs> so many people were, and, and I'm at the cusp of the midlife stage where I said, oh my gosh, this is what I'm becoming. Like hard left, right? Hard right. We need to reform some habits if I'm just going to build them up in the first half and live them out in the second half. 
So there, there's this balance between what is the personality that we're God-given and how is it that we use that in our life? And so as we look at the embodied life and include our bodies in the spiritual conversation, just as it's not all nature, not all nurture, we have to realize that we are not only obeying, but also not completely dismissing our bodies. Instead, we are including our bodies. We're responding, we're dialoguing with who we are emotionally as we navigate this thing we call faith. So today what I want to talk about from Romans 1 and 2 is in short, like how to handle our moods. When to trust and not trust our emotions, our body's impulses, and how to make good decisions in all of your you, right? Like some of you are like, but ugh, like God doesn't get like, I'm just a lot for God. Like I'm a lot of me for God. And he, I don't know if he can handle me because a lot of people in my life haven't been able to handle me because I'm just a lot. So how do we navigate our emotions and our mood? Welcome to not just make successful decisions by the world's standards, but to make successful decisions aligned to God's will. To make decisions as best as we can in light of our moods and our personalities. And we call this discernment. Discernment is to seek, to listen, and act in accordance with the will of God. To listen and act in accordance with the will of God as unique personalities in unique bodies. So, we are not just making our decisions as we relate to God in our emotions. Certain expressions of the Christian faith are very emotion forward, right? I want to get into it. I want to feel it. I want to feel God. Feelings contribute, but they are not our only guide. They can lie to us. Because those same feelings that make you go, oh my gosh, I feel his presence, can also make you go, I'm so angry, and shout curse words at your loved one. You can't just obey those emotions, but they are a part of it. It's not just logical decisions. Certain expressions of the Christian faith are very big on logic. I see it in the Bible. It works out like algebra. This is what X is. I know it. It's done. You can't convince me of any other way. The Holy Spirit is in that algorithm. He doesn't deviate from, like, I'm sorry. That's logic forward. And the facts help. They are crucial. But if we only lived in the facts of what we can see, if we only lived with our five senses, I'm sorry, we can't be a Christian. Because to Christian is to step out in faith, in belief, in the unseen. Where people here that profess Jesus died and rose again by belief in a text, not by what we've seen with our own eyes. And so to have discernment means to hold your emotions and your logic and lift them up to Christ in faith and begin to make Christ-like decisions. This is emotional and logical decisions through the filter of faith. And what they will look like is loving, self-sacrificial, hopeful. 
decisions. They will be transformational to ourselves and others because that's the kind of decisions that Jesus made. And when we do that, we will begin to live a life where we begin to know and want what God wants in the world. So when Paul writes here in Romans, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test. That that's a word that means to know, to understand, and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at what does it mean to be people who can test and approve what God's will is. The problem is that this process of decision-making, we all have to make really hard decisions in our life. This process is taught and learned, must be taught to you by Christians and learned as a Christian. But all around us, we're learning different forms and ways to discern and make decisions. This is not spiritual discernment guided by the Holy Spirit, but it's worldly or fleshly discernment in the biblical language, meaning that it's taught to you as a cultural way to success, or it's taught to you by your own body as your feelings, what you should decide based on what you want or need. Flowing from the gut alone without faith, from the mind alone, from logic, or from the earth, from the culture alone. And we need our mind, our gut, and our heart to make big decisions. These are, the, these are what a lot of authors articulate as the three pieces of our decision making. But if we're not careful, we'll learn from the life around us and from the people that teach us and we will begin to make decisions that aren't made in faith, but they're made, heavily, they're made heavily from one of these centers. And some of us have a predisposition to making decisions from one of those centers, right? Some of us are impulsive. We make a lot of decisions from our gut. Some of us are people pleasers. We make a lot of decisions from our heart. And some of us are very logical, and we make a lot of decisions based on, no, this is the plan. This is the strategy. Don't deviate from the plan, right? So all of us have a different, like, basic intuitive way that we make decisions based on our personalities, both nature and nurture. If we've been hurt from trauma, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If we've experienced trauma, we're going to make decisions as a result of that trauma. Usually they're going to be heavily informed by mistrust in our decision making. I saw a friend's Facebook post, and this is a little bit of a story. There were a number of posts over a period of weeks. I pop on Facebook every once in a while, and I saw their story, and it's a good friend from college, and she was selling her bike shop in Chicago. And it was just like a celebration, it's time to hand this off, and I was like, wow, that's, that's really great to be able to have something that hard, I'm sure that was hard, and to be celebrating it and handing it off, that's so wonderful. Pop back and I said, goodbye Chicago, right? And, and I go, goodbye Chicago? Oh, she's not just selling the bike shop. What's going on? Next post comes up a week later. It's the Chicago skyline. And it's a series of shots on the road. Cloudy day. 
And she says, goodbye, Chicago. And she goes, I won't say why, but we can't live here anymore. Week later, rainy day, rainy night, like semis, oncoming traffic. The, the image is like dreary and it's just angry. Okay, guys, now I'm going to let it all out. Like now that she's got her safe distance from Chicago, she's moved out. And I, I don't know the whole story, but it was angry. This is why we left. It was a whirlwind of emotions. Had frustration, political disagreement, feelings of defending her kids, fear of the government and the medical establishment. Like, and I'm not here to judge any of this. I'm just saying that this was what she was laying out as the reasons for leaving Chicago. And I go, there it is. Wow. Wow. We make, and, and I am complicit in this, we make decisions from these three places. And sometimes we can run the danger of not making them full of faith, but full of fear. Let's consider like in your own life, see if you connect with one of these three. Have you made really, what turned out to be really important decisions in your life out of fear and it resulted in making decisions that were people pleasing? So a good biblical example of this would be Aaron and the golden calf. If you, if you have biblical understanding of the Old Testament, you know the story in Exodus. What happens? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Like this is a big deal moment. And the Israelites are down and they have to wait like a little bit longer than they thought. And they leave Aaron, the priest, like the spiritual leader of the community. And they start to complain it was better when we were in slavery. It was better in Egypt. We need something to worship. Build us this golden calf. And what does Aaron do? He caves. He compromises. He makes um, what turned out to be a massive life decision, a life-changing decision for Israel to make somebody else happy. And we do this too. We make really important decisions. We fight and we fight and fight and we finally give up and we make a really important decision simply to make our children happy. Simply to make our spouse happy. To make our boss happy. Because we're afraid. So we're operating out of this gut space that's just in this fight or flight and this fear mode and it finally caves. We're not making the decision. Now hear this. You can operate out of that gut space and make a decision looking for the will of God. But when you look to please somebody else with your decision, before you look to please God with your decision, that's where you fall off of spiritual discernment into just worldly decision-making. And I, I am guilty of this. Maybe you've made tremendous life-changing decisions out of anger. Now, keep it quiet if you've made it out of really like malicious anger, but I'm willing to guess that a lot of your anger was for justice. When Peter chops off the ear of the guard when they're coming to take Jesus to the cross, that is not malicious hatred. That is Peter going, the only fair and just thing to do right now is defend the Lord Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has hurt nobody. He is just zealous for justice. He wants justice. Can't you see it? Ah, right? 
and out of anger, because things are so unfair, he makes a life, what will begin to be a set of life-altering decisions that evening. So do you, have you made important life decisions because it's just not fair for me? Because I need to prove a point with somebody I disagree with. Fine. Have it your way. Because I earned it or deserve it. Look, I've worked so hard for this. Now it's my turn. Or the last one is for the logic people. And a lot of times this reason is made for what you would call as a logical person, survival. You make life-changing decisions because we just need to survive. Whatever threshold you put that on, survival might be like eat and have a roof over our heads or survival might be like we can't lose the truck, right? But you've decided that this is survival. And so you make logical decisions. Numerous kings in the Old Testament made decisions like this. They said, we're gonna get attacked and slaughtered by these surrounding nations. So here's the deal. Solomon did this. He goes, we wanna expand empire. We wanna, we wanna help the people of Israel. Yeah, whatever, set up idols, set them up all over the place. Welcome those people in. They're all coming in here to trade. In fact, I'll marry all the wives. So we'll have alliances with all of these communities. We'll erect all of these statues, but like we still follow Yahweh. But this is strategic, guys. This is how we're gonna get ahead. This is what's gonna be good for God. It might be making a pros and cons list or having goal-based strategies. But the bottom line is, if you too heavily weight any of these in your decision-making process, you will be making decisions simply based on what you see on what you see. So I'm gonna say something that might change your paradigm. There are not good and bad decisions as a Christian. There are not good and bad decisions that you can make as a Christian. There are only faithful and unfaithful decisions. That might relieve something in you because I think we live in fear of making that bad decision of saying, I just finally did the one that really screwed it up. I'm the screw up. If we just hadn't moved to Portland, or if we just hadn't you know, bought this house and this neighborhood, everything's breaking down and I, make, I made the bad decision. No, there's only faithful and unfaithful decisions. And I want you to know this, that God has tremendous mercy for us in our faith, unfaithful decisions. You need to hear that right now because you're coming in today and you know you've made faithless decisions. You've made them this week. And God says, my mercy is upon you. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 13. This is such a profound line. He says, if we are faithless, he is faithful still. It goes in about how we should be faithful and he will be faithful. But if we are faithless, he is faithful still. And so look, I don't know about my friend on Facebook. I don't have, I'm not close enough to sit down and call them up and say, hey, like, tell me the real story here. But when I read it, I feared a loss of faith 
The articulation of the reasoning wasn't, we've been led out and we're so hopeful and excited and we're so like the next chapter is gonna be one where God shows up, right? And we are following his leading. Instead, the decision was geared toward what everything that they were against. And so in our discernment, are we making decisions for what we're against, right? Faithless, self-protective decisions, or are we making decisions on what we're for? And what we are for is for Christ to be more in us, more in the world, more in our families, more in our workplaces. God is faithful to you. And even if you are faithless, he is faithful still. And he's going to lead you step by step in these faithful decisions. So Christian discernment is not like, how do I make that really big decision? Christian discernment is, how do I live faithful in each little decision, day by day by day, trusting, get this, trusting that when the big decision comes, it actually won't feel like a big decision anymore. St. Augustine, who is an early church father, wrote, it was famous for writing this. He said, love God and do whatever you please. That's his like discernment rubric, right? Just love God and do whatever. Seems kind of flippant, doesn't it, when you hear it, when you think about it. Author Bill Strum writes that this catches a lot of his students off guard. He says, it sounds like a license to live a double life, right? Just love God and do whatever. However, Augustine made this point when preaching on 1 John 4, 4 through 12, where John calls us to love because love is of God and because God first loved us. Augustine's full quotation was, love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Now, now that sounds a lot more like love God and love neighbor, doesn't it? To offend the one who is beloved. That's me, and that's all of you. We are all beloved. We will do nothing to offend not only all of us, but also Christ is the one beloved by the Father. Love God and do whatever you please. But see, this line to me, when I'm sitting in like, I've got to make a big decision, and this is what I get from God, is love God and do whatever. It's like, thanks God, that is not very helpful. It's like Megan at her call to worship this morning. I asked God for like a word, and then it was the crickets. Thanks, God. Where's like the word? Where's the voice of God from the burning bush? Where's the, you know, like, where is it? I want the roadmap, the plan, where to move, what job to take, how many kids to have. But if I get to the bottom of it and I really think about why I need that roadmap, what I really want is a decision which will get me whatever plus success. I want the roadmap because then I can evaluate whether I want it or not. I want the roadmap because then I can say, okay, God, now I know I'm gonna be successful. I'll start step one now that I can see step 10. I agree with that, God, that was a good one. Let's do that, right? And he's like, I can't work with these guys. Like, are you serious? When will you learn? I have plans for you that are for your flourishing that will look like the life of Jesus. And you won't pick them if you see step 10. You won't pick them if you see where I'm leading you. 
But if you zoom out on the whole big scheme of things, you would say, thank you, God, for taking me your servant and picking me. Think of people that have done tremendous good in the world at tremendous cost to themselves. The late Roman Catholic priest and contemplative Harry Na Henry Nouwen wrote frequently about discernment in his own life. And he often recognized two competing voices, the voice to succeed and the voice to stay close to Jesus. The voice to succeed and the voice to stay close to Jesus. Ouch. That's hard. Fortunately, Paul shows us in Romans 1 that to make these decisions and to see the voice to succeed and the voice to stay close to Jesus and to pick Jesus can be learned in this step-by-step -step fashion. And we will slowly, I believe, we will slowly become the kind of person who can't not make certain decisions. I was talking to this friend this week about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which if you ha don't remember me talking about him, I've talked about him in probably 10 sermons or more. He's an, he's an absolute icon to me, absolute saint. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor uh, known for being a pastor in the confessing church in Germany during the Nazi regime and during the heart of World War II. And he was not always called a pastor of the confessing church because there was just the Christian church until the Christian church decided to compromise and listen to the voice of success and Jesus and the Nazis so that they wouldn't all get killed. And Bonhoeffer said, I can't, I can't do that. Like I literally can't be part of this church. So he forms a confessing church. That I'm sure was a hard decision of itself made through step-by-step -step decisions prior to that. But then you fast forward and he's writing a letter attesting to being part, agreeing to be part of an attempt of conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like a champion of nonviolent resistance, who has finally come to a place where he can't not make a decision that is a life-altering decision that ends up costing him his life. He is put to death. He is sent to a prison camp, and he dies at the hand of the Nazis. That seems like a really hard decision to make. Like that is a life altering decision. But I'm willing to bet that as hard as it was, at that point, Bonhoeffer couldn't not make that decision. It's like Peter, when he says, where can we go? You are the Christ. And we make these decisions in part by, by being known as a person who must choose this way. Here, here Bonhoeffer is the head of the confessing church. He can't suddenly like switch course for his own protection or he would alienate himself by all of the believing Christians who he has like led. So it is in this step-by-step -step process that God in his grace makes us into people who can't not start to make the choices we're making. 
And to me, that gives me a lot of peace because it seems like you can have a lot of fear in saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to have that big decision in my life and I'm going to, I'm going to duck. But if you out yourself day in and day out to people, you've got communities around you who you know you're that guy, then at some point you just have to make the hard decision, the life-changing decision. And that's part of the discernment process. Rebecca Laird and Michael Christensen, who wrote a, a book chronicling Henry Nouwen's process of discernment, say that discernment is a regular discipline of listening to the still, small voice beneath the rush of the whirlwind. A prayerful practice of reading the subtle signs in daily life. Discernment is not once and for all decision-making at critical points of one's life, like, should I take this job? Whom should I marry? Where should I live or work? But a lifelong commitment to remember God Know who you are and pay close attention to what the Spirit is saying today. Ian Bonhoeffer's small community, where he is daily worshiping with a few select pastors that have said, we're going to come out to you and we're going to, we're going to build something. He's famous for pointing to the, to the Hitler youth practicing across the river and saying, look at that, those forces our forces need to be stronger than their forces to his little ragtag group of pastors. So here he is, he's saying, we're going to be a community with a lifelong commitment to remember God, to know who we are. And then day by day to pay close attention to what the Spirit is saying. And then here this community that's helping Jews get out of Germany says, we've got to make a big move. This is the big move. We've got the plan. Here's the people. Will you be a part of this? And he signs. Discernment for us is a process of holy sifting. It is evaluating everything you see, do, plan, and feel, not by your sensibilities alone, but by your sensibilities in conversation with God. until eventually it will transform your sense of self, who you are. The more you live in truth, the more limited your life will become, and yet the more free. Because in fits and starts, you begin to practice what God wills. You get that, right? Bonhoeffer had an increasingly limited amount of options, and yet he professes to feel more and more free and yet lives in the fear of God. When he made that final decision, he wrote at length because it was contrary to his pacifist mentality. And he wrote at length, I am making this decision and I am putting myself at the hand of God. Should he send me to hell, hell that's his choice. I can make no other decision. More limited and yet more free. But the reason discernment is so hard for us is because our bodies, the world, and the devil all lie to us. A couple weeks ago, I did a sermon on cosmic conflict, and I talked about how Jesus describes the devil as the father of lies in John 8, 44. 
So discernment then, if the devil is the father of lies, discernment must mean seen beneath, seen under what is supposedly really there. Perhaps not what is said in a conversation is what needs to be listened to if you're discerning, but what is left unsaid. Perhaps not what is being shown front, center, in the spotlight, but what is being hidden. Perhaps not the talk of somebody, but their character. Not the presentation in the moment, but the history. Not the body, but the soul. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel has come to anoint the next king of Israel, after Saul has proven to be a false king, he arrives to Jesse and he says, let me see your sons. And he brings them all out one by one, oldest first, good dad. And they're, they're good looking guys, they're strong, they're able. Samuel saw Eliab, which was the oldest son, and he said, surely here before the Lord is his anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man does, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. Saul looked like a great king. Just a handsome, strapping young guy. Did all the right things for a while. But then he began to live out lies from the devil. He embodied lies. He animated lies. And gave death a willing companion in this world. So when we listen to lies and we begin to act them out, we become real things that are acting out non-things. A lie is a non-thing. Satan was the first figure cosmically to act out this non-thing. He goes, oh, life, uh, God, all that, I don't want any of it. And I'm going to believe and then practice that out. And then other people are gonna go, oh, see, there is another thing. See, I see it over there, it's moving, it works. When we begin to listen to lies, then it gets tricky because now living things are animating death. And so we get to a place where things are not as they seem. It, we have to figure it out. We go, you say you believe Jesus. You're preaching a sermon about Jesus dying and raising again. But I just saw a news article that said your church is abusing children. This is happening in some churches. And you have to go, okay, this person has chosen to believe a lie and is now animating that lie. And I can't just believe what they say. I need to look beneath and I need to see the whole picture. And I need to ask what is going on here. Things are not as they seem. This is why discernment is so important. The, the, the gut reaction would be like, oh, I'm done with Jesus, I'm done with the church, because look, they're all like this, it's all awful. No, each person has a choice and a discernment to make. So when Saul is a false king, Samuel comes and he, he's appointed to find a new king. We can't have a king that represents the people of Israel acting out lies and showing people that this is what following God is. We need a new person who is aligned and is living out and animating life. 
So in discernment, we have to say, okay, if things are not as they seem, then how do I know? How do I know? So I've told this story a few times this week. Uh, let's see, three or four weeks ago, there was a yard, there was an estate sale across the street from our house. And a young kid was part of the family of this, uh, the, the deceased, where they were selling the house, they were putting um, the grandmother, she was going into a home, and so they had this estate sale, and they have a huge family. And they had one kid out there that had this Apple Watch. And I was walking up with Amelia, just checking out the estate sale, oh, I'll get this, yeah, I'll get this ruler, I'll get this level, I'll get this old tool, great, yeah, five bucks, 10 bucks. Whoa, that's a brand new Apple Watch. And he goes, uh, hey, I've got, I got this as a gift. I'll give it to you for 50 bucks. And I go, I'm pretty sure that's worth like four or 500 bucks. Check it out on Google. Yep, that's worth $450. So I look to a million, I go, this is a really good object lesson, right? This is an investment. Your dad will go in half and half with you, right? And we're gonna buy this watch and we're gonna resell it. And we're gonna see if we can make some money. Like this will be an interesting business proposition. So we buy the watch. Kid's more than happy to sell us the watch take the watch home, can't get it to work quite, have to take it back to him. He gets it all working and he gives us back and we go, okay, great. Now I put it on offer up, I get a bid on it. I sit down at the coffee shop to sell this watch. And it's always like really weird when you're selling something at a coffee shop, you're like, you got the stuff, yeah, I got the stuff. And it's like, okay, hit it to him. I'm like hoping it works because it's not my watch. I bought it like a week ago. It all checks out, takes it home. I text, uh, Amelia's with her grandparents, I text, I said, we, we sold it. Sit down, later that day I'm working, I get this email that just makes my just heart just drop into my stomach. It says, hey, I don't, I don't think this was an accident, but this watch is stolen. And I was just like, this isn't who I am. You know, I don't sell stolen watches. I don't know, like, you know, like, I don't know what to do about this. And immediately, I was like, hey, like, uh, fortunately you paid on Venmo, I'll just Venmo you the money right back, like, I am so sorry, um, like, just keep it. I, I, I don't know what happened, right? Things are not always as they seem. And that watch was stolen. And I had to make some decisions. I had to make some decisions in that moment about what was right to do. My mom used to say, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. That was definitely one of those moments. And I thought back in discernment about that. And I thought, yeah, that was definitely my logic head operating a lot more than anything else. I was thinking about me and I was thinking about how I could get some money off of this. Right? And how I could be a good dad and teach my daughter and we could both make some money. And like, I was not putting everything together. Why are you selling this watch that I could turn around and sell for $400 for $50? Like, this is odd. This is fishy. And I thought back on it and I thought a little bit, who's the real fool here? Like, I had to be complicit in some way in also believing into a lie, in also saying, I'm gonna benefit myself off of this. And the kid had to be complicit. 
And I thought about it and I thought like, if, if there hadn't been any report of that watch being stolen, that is what cosmic conflict is. The devil orchestrates a giant pyramid scheme and he's selling stolen watches that he gets us all to keep selling. We don't even know we're selling them at some point. But eventually the house of cards will fall. So how do we know and how do we test the spirits in Paul's, in Paul's words? He says that if we are living by faith, that's what verses one and two are about, this will enable us to rightly evaluate, to test, to name the thoughts and influences and forces that are at play. And now it says this, he says, knowing that there is a strong temptation to name darkness as light and light as darkness. The reason that I bought the watch is that it was just a gift. Darkness, he, this kid knew full well this watch was stolen and he named darkness as light. Now I could have had another temptation in that moment. I could have participated in the cosmic pyramid scheme. If that guy had written back on the offer up, hey, don't know if you know, I assume this wasn't an accident, but this watch is stolen. I could have just not responded. Instead of choosing light, I could have said, nope, I choose to be darkness masquerading as light. Or I could say, no, it isn't, right? Like I could have done any number of things that would have participated in that cosmic pyramid scheme of evil and death and lies. But instead, partly because it's just who I am, you guys, it like wasn't that hard of a decision. It was like $300, like 50 bucks for the watch. I'm out 50. Like, I just want to be a good person, right? Like, I feel terrible. But I know full well that like whoever sold me that watch knowingly chose to make a decision to benefit. And if he was bothered, he was probably ultimately bothered less and less the more and more decisions that he might make like that. Do you get what I'm saying? If we participate step by step by step in walking in the light and naming darkness as darkness and light as light, we become the kind of people that can, and that was a small decision. That was God preparing me for a bigger decision that's gonna to have to happen at some point. It's gonna cost me more. Will you make, this is a test, will you make the right decision? Will you refund the money, right? So it is in this testing of spirits and these naming of thoughts and influences and forces. And in knowing that in that moment, there was a small, at that point it was very small. I don't even remember like a voice in my head saying like, John, don't respond, just keep the 300. Because I pushed that out enough. But there could easily, for lots of people that needed the 300 a lot more, been a much larger voice. And can you name can you name that voice as darkness? Paul writes, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we have to test the spirits. Part of Christian discernment is testing the spirits. All influences that we encounter of any kind, we could test the spirits in a pop song. It could be in a movie. It could be in a book, a teacher, a pastor, a Christian on Facebook that we listen to, a movement, a political ideology, a mood that we have, a funk that we're in, a fear that we feel, a dream that we have, a great dream, a nightmare. All of those things we need to test 
the spirits and become people who can weigh and sift with a holy sifting what it is that's really going on. 1 John 4, verse 4. The beloved Apostle John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. St. Ignatius of Loyola was a Catholic priest in the late 1400s, early 1500s. He had this tremendous story of glory and battle, standing up and fighting. He wanted to be the kind of soldier that was praised for being so brave and courageous until one day a cannonball flew through his legs and he spent his time months and months and months, if not years, in a hospital ward, unable to live the life he had planned. His whole life trajectory changed in a moment and he was navigating these extreme ups and downs of the spiritual life, just totally depressed until finally there was only a few books he could read some lives of the saints, and I believe it's part of the Bible. And he, he, he discerned two things going on in his body as he was reading and communing with God. He said there was this feeling of consolation and this feeling of desolation. The consolation is what John is describing here as Jesus in the flesh. This is hope. This is energy. This is a feeling like God is with me, a comfort. Or there's a desolation that Jesus is not from God, and this will ultimately lead to hopelessness. So what John's saying here is not just like only listen to people who are proclaiming Jesus rose from the grave at a pulpit. You can trust everything those people do. No, that's like such a shallow legal reading of the text. He's saying, listen to people, to any spirit, not just a person, to any thought that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he has mercy for you and not shame, that you should not feel shame, right? That he is not a condemning God, but a God who will spare you again and again in his love for you. That's a spirit that confesses that Jesus has come from the flesh. A spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God is a spirit of desolation, one that puts you into hopelessness in hopes of getting you to move farther and farther from God in the cosmic pyramid scheme. And the tools of those spirits that do not confess Jesus as Lord are fear, shame, anxiety. Those run rampant. When you are making decisions out of fear, shame, and anxiety, like... Take a step back. Take a moment. Pray. Ask God to be with you. Begin to name the influences. Because the father of lies can tempt us to discern poorly. Now, how did that guy who bought that watch me know it was stolen? Like, how did he know? Because Apple has a thing in their watches where if they're reported stolen, they will no longer work. 
And so once he had it set up and he was connecting it to the, the interwebs, it goes, sorry, this watch is stolen. So this guy literally can't use this watch anymore because the creator of the watch knew the truth about the watch. The creator of the watch knew the truth. And as soon as he communicated with the creator, he could discern the truth. As soon as we can see the reality that is given to us by the manufacturer, the creator of all things, that's a word we can trust. I could say Apple doesn't know what they're talking about, man. That He's not going to believe me because he's the creator. So discernment then is an act, is in a way prayer itself. This is where we're going to kind of close up. Prayer is discernment. Discernment is prayer. Prayer, discernment grows in prayer. And it is the act of actually praying and communicating with God that we grow in discernment. Nowen calls it marching to a beat of a different drummer. When we communicate with the creator, we begin to learn and know the true nature of things. And he gave us this prayer. The creator gave us this prayer to pray, the simple prayer, the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That tells us our identity. He's our Father. We are beloved. It tells us he can be trusted. He's perfect in heaven. That he is hallowed. That he is holy, set apart from every other source. He is the creator, the manufacturer. Those three things are the starting point of the prayer because if we start in our belovedness and if we start in submission to the one true authority over all life, we can then go and make much better decisions. I guarantee you, if when I had got the watch working, I had gotten to the place where it said, oh, it's stolen. The creator says of this watch says it's stolen. I would have just given it right back to the kid. The earlier we can be in communication with the true nature of things, the better. Then the prayer goes on to aligning our purpose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What kingdom, what will? When you make big decisions, are you, at, are you going through, are you taking a second to just declutter your life and step through the Lord's prayer and say, okay, I'm feeling the feelings. I'm getting the shivers up my spine. I'm getting that like hot, sweaty feeling. This, I don't know what to do right here. Or I'm very frustrated or I'm very angry. I'm very ticked off. Like I am in a fight or flight mode. Can I declutter for a minute? Can I retreat for a second and go, okay, I'm loved by God. He is completely trustworthy. He's asking me to do his will. And then the second half of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. He will provide for me and he will do as he says. And I simply need to do as he says. Lead us not into temptation. That says, teach us to test the spirits. We can trust that God will test the spirits, but deliver us from evil. And when we pray the prayer, because the creator is trustworthy, the prayer is as good as done when it's prayed. This is crazy. 
Mark 11, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We can now act out of the fact that we are truly and perfectly loved, that we are provided for in this very moment, and that God's will is the absolute best thing to do in any circumstance. So there are not good and bad decisions, they're only faithful and faithless decisions. Very, very, very quickly, I just wanna give you a few things. If you're somebody who writes things down, these are just a few practical tips to practice discernment more intentionally. We have to get time alone. If you're not taking some time alone to weigh out big decisions in your life, things that are really, when you're alone with yourself, when you're a parent, it's like when you finally get it, just the bathroom, the door is locked and you have a minute, right? Or if you're at work and you get on your break time, what are the thoughts that bubble up to you? Where is your mind going? This is your body telling you what's preoccupying you, what is frustrating you, what is in turmoil. Have some time to sit alone. Pray through this prayer to declutter and to put, as Nowen calls it, walls up around you to protect your thoughts. Now that I have the walls of something like the Lord's Prayer, or it can be any number of Bible verses, now that I have these around me, I can make decisions because I can truly see. Take time to process, put those walls up, take time alone. And then pay attention to how the Spirit is steering you. How is the Spirit steering you? Weigh and sift and ask, where does, where does my feelings of consolation or desolation go? Am I feeling full, excited, energetic? Am I feeling that I know and I'm anchored and this is the right thing to do, even though it has great cost to me? Or am I feeling totally unsure? Do I really want this? but something about it feels off. And then go from being alone. This is super key. A lot of us, some of us are terrible at alone. Some of us are great at alone. We're making all kinds of decisions alone. We're making way too many decisions alone. Now you have to go to the people in your life and listen to the good advisors in your life. Do you even have advisors? In this church, we have our cohort, our group of guys and our group of girls, who gals who meet together. That's good. You should probably have more people in your life than that group even. People that are your advisors. What are people in your life and your path that are coming, that are as now and calls them angels unawares, messengers of God speaking things to you that if you were discerning, you would go, oh my gosh. That person didn't even know what they were saying, but I needed to hear that. And what are those people saying to you? And then listening to opportunities, what opportunities exist, and listening to the broader church community. What does the body have to say? Gosh, guys, if we as church practice this more, we said, I am really struggling with this thing. I've sat with God. Here's where I'm at. I'm weighing these things. Help me sift, close friend. Help me sift, community it would tremendously change us. And it will step by step build us into people who can stand firm like the Bonhoeffers of the world and eventually bring us into a childlike maturity of trust and faith in God. Let's pray. God, thank you 
Thank you that you know us. Thank you that you know us deep, deep down. God, when we're quiet, just this silence right now, it brings up so much. Is John going to say something? I don't, want to, I, won't, I don't want things to be quiet. God, you're talking to us with the still small voice. You're talking to us in the quiet. You're talking to us in our impatience. Help us to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen.